Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning to study God's Word with us. Uh, we have some visitors. We're happy you're here. We're going through all of our classes, really going through the narrative of the entire Bible in about four years. We are this morning in the middle of the divided kingdom period, uh, and we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 20, in the middle of that chapter, in verse 22 in just a moment. So, uh, for purposes of study and just to organize it, we divide the narrative of Scripture into 17 Bible periods, and here we are after the United Kingdom of Saul, David, and Solomon in this period of the divided kingdom with Ahab reigning in the north. Ahab has married uh, an evil woman by the name of Jezebel, who was the daughter of the king of Sidon, and she has uh, stirred up Ahab to do a lot of terrible, horrible things, and the entire nation of Israel was led away into idolatry during uh, this time. Elijah has had a great victory on Mount Carmel over the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and things had turned somewhat. Elijah himself goes through a stage of depression, but God brings him out of it, and he is now uh, full bore uh, doing the work of God. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Israel has had conflict with Syria to the north, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, have, has come up the capital, the capital of uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, which is Samaria, and besieged it. But uh, with God's help, uh, the Israelites were able to gain a, gain a great victory over the Syrians. And that's where we wind up uh, as we look today, and that's where we wound up, I should say, last class period. We're going to be looking today at Ahab battling Syria again, and again, God will give them a great victory, the Israelites. <clears throat> but Ahab's going to do something at the end of that that comes to the attention of the Lord, and God is going to rebuke him for it through a prophet. And then Ahab is uh, going to do with Jezebel some a really diabolical deed at the end of our class tonight, as we'll talk, or this morning, I'm sorry, as we'll talk about Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. So we're picking up. 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 22, Israel just had a great victory over uh, the Syrians. And now a prophet comes to the king of Israel in verse 22 and says, Go strengthen yourselves, take note, and see that what you should do, for in the spring of the year the king of Syria will come up against you. So again, there's going to be another battle, the prophet says. He's going to come up against you again. Meanwhile, uh, the Syrians are licking their wounds from the first battle and the great defeat there. The servants of the king of Syria, in verse 23, say to him, their gods are gods of the hills. So I showed you, we showed a couple of times already the, the hill of Samaria and the hilly area around Samaria. And so if you had uh, a god who was the god of the hills, that would be the place to be. And so that's the assumption of the Syrians that, wow, their God must be the God of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we, but if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will, we will be stronger than they. Uh, this is a, such a typical pagan concept of who God is and what a God is. Uh, and it's not just the, the, the Syrians of the day. It's, it's idolatrous paganism all over the world. The concept of gods being localized, of gods only having power in a certain area, uh, very common throughout the world where idolatry is practiced and has been practiced. So that's the concept of, uh, of the Syrians, but it's, it's an affront to God, isn't it? 
It's an insult to God. Well, God, he, the God of Israel, he can only win victories, you know, on the, on the mountains. That's obviously nuts and insulting to the God who is all-powerful. Um, besides saying that, Ben-Hadad's, King Ben-Hadad's servants also tell him that he needs to reorganize his army. Instead of having kings... Uh, he needs to have captains. These would be men who are familiar with warfare uh, and put those in the places of the kings that, that he had used previously. And then uh, muster an army just like the one that you had, all of the horses that got destroyed in the last battle, all of the chariots, all of that. Put another one together as big as that and uh, surely we're going to win. That's the advice of his advisor. So the second battle joins in verse 26. It was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad, king of... Uh, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. The children of Israel were mustered and given and they went against them. So apparently Ahab listened to the prophet and he had prepared for this. He was ready to go. The children of Israel encamped before them, but they were like two little flocks of goats and the Syrians filled the countryside. So this, again, a massive army of Syrians, uh, the forces of Israel, not to be compared numerically with them. Kind of reminds me of that scene in Lord of the Rings at the end, you know, where the men of the West and the forces of Mordor, anyway, if you're not familiar with that, it won't make any difference. But um, Just have this couple of small groups of Israelites. Um, what occurs is... <clears throat> You know, God has an objective here, as is typically the case, and his objective will be attained, whether anybody else's is or not. Um, and he sends a, a prophet to tell what it is that he wants done. A man of God come and, and came and spoke to the king of Israel, came and spoke to Ahab, says, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is God of the hills, but he's not God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, that you shall know that I am the Lord. So there are two things working. First of all, the, 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 the Syrians did not understand the nature and the power of the God of Israel. And he was going to show them that if they hadn't got it yet. Secondly, Ahab needed to know that the Lord is truly God. Ahab, as we've already seen, had you know, given himself over to idolatry, uh, had idolatry throughout the land of Israel. Uh, if Elijah had not won that great victory on Mount Carmel against the prophets of the Baals and the Asherah, Ahab would probably still be a full-fledged idolater, trusting in idols who cannot speak, hear, or do anything. And yet, uh, God wants to convince this man who's been a very wicked king that he is truly, that God is truly the Lord. God wants to, Ahab to learn to depend on him and understand his sovereignty even though he has been and is a wicked individual. That's the nature of God. He will be in the end glorified by all peoples everywhere. He will be in the end recognized for his majesty and power by all peoples everywhere. And you see him working toward that in the life of Ahab here. So you have these two camps, these two armies, if you will, 
opposite each other for seven, seven days. On the seventh day, the battle begins. And sure enough, the Lord is with the Israelites. And they wind up killing 100,000 Syrians on that day. Huge num- numbers, but it was a huge army. Um, they, they rout the Syrians. The Syrians flee. Uh, and they flee to Aphek, which is the place where this battle is said to have occurred. And when they get there, a, a wall fell on them, and 27,000 men were left. Who, who were left, um, it fell on all of them. Ben-Hadad flees from there into the city in an upper chamber. So, uh, a, a mass slaughter of Syrians, this event which one would only presume was caused by God Himself and causing this, what must have been a large city wall to fall on top of uh, 27,000 of the troops of the Syrians. Um, again, by his power, uh, the victory is won. So here's the geography that we're looking at right now. Aphek is over here in the Transjordan, at least this Aphek. If you study through Scripture in the Old Testament, there are at least three Aphek's that are named. Uh, this particular site is one that we're nearly 100% sure, but nothing's 100% probably when it comes to ancient geography, uh, most likely. Uh, where this battle occurred, modern Jordan. So that's where, we're, that's where we are. Syria, of course, Aram on this map. That's part of the territory of Syria at this time, so it would be the place where they would fight in the open um, as they wanted to and not in the hills around Syria. What follows <clears throat> is that... Uh, the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, is still alive as he escaped the first time that Israel defeated him. He's escaped this time as well. And as we just read, he's in a house uh, at Aphek, apparently. So we pick up in verse uh, 31. The servant said to him, now look, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful. So the rumor is that the kings of Israel are not as cruel as you are, I suppose, that they're merciful kings, and so maybe we can work something so we can get some mercy here. So they said, let us put on sackcloth around our waist, ropes around our heads, and go to the king of Israel, and perhaps he will spare your life. So they offer his servants to, to go... Um, present themselves before the king of Israel and beg for mercy on behalf of themselves and their kings and their king with sackcloth and uh, ropes around their heads indicating that they're willing to submit to the king of Israel. Um, and, and, they, and they do that. Um, the war, verse 32, the sackcloth around their waist, they put on the ropes on their heads, they came to the king of Israel. They say, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. So Ben-Hadad's begging for his life. Uh, and Ahab responds this way. This is incredible. He says, is he still alive? In other words, the king of Syria has escaped all of this you know, carnage that we, we've defeated his army. We've chased everybody into Aphek. This wall has fallen. But the king, is he still alive? And then he says, he is my brother. I mean, 
I don't know in what sense <laughs> Ben-Hadad could be his brother. Here he is, having brought an army, armies of over 100,000 people twice against Israel to try to destroy them. And it's only by, by God's help that Israel has won these battles. But Ahab says, well, he's, he's my brother. We're comrades in arms or whatever. And the men were watching closely to see any sign of mercy that would come from him. They quickly grasped the word when he, says, when he said that, your brother Ben-Hadad. So he said, go and bring him. So now the emissaries, the servants of Ben-Hadad have hope. They come out, they get him, they, they bring him. He comes up into the chariot with Ahab. So here they are, the two kings having a conversation in the chariot. Ben-Hadad says to him, the cities which my father took from your father I will restore. So all of this campaigning against Israel that had been going on for years, all of the victories that they've won, Ben-Hadad's willing to give all of that back at this point. Of course, he's not in a position to do much else. But then he says, I'll restore those and I'll set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. In other words, you, you, you can send your uh, people of commerce and, and your, your sellers and your exporters and you can send them up to Damascus. They can set up shops and you can make money off of uh, us. Just set that right up in Damascus, the capital city of Syria. They agree. Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made him a treaty and sent him away. Now, those who've tried to analyze this, not only from a biblical perspective, but from what we know is going on in the world at this time, have suggested this, that uh, Ahab was probably aware that just to the other side of Syria, the Assyrians were rising in power, and uh, he was going to need uh, some sort of a buffer nation up on that flank of Israel to protect him from the, Syrian, the Assyrians. And what better thing to do than form an, an alliance with Syria so that Israel and Syria could stand against the Assyrians. And secular history says, at least on one occasion, that they did that in a pretty famous battle during this time period. So, could be that that's what Ahab is thinking. Could be he's just thinking... Ben-Hadad's offering me more money. I like more money, so I'll do it. You know, could be as simple as that. So I'm not sure of all of uh, Ahab's motivations. But whatever they are, they did not please God. God didn't all, uh, cause all this to happen so that um, Ahab could let Ben-Hadad go. That's, that wasn't why God caused all this to happen. So God sends a prophet to Ahab to just tell him you know, how bad he's messed up here. Pick it up in verse 35. A certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, strike me please. And the man refused to strike him. So now we're getting uh, into um, a conclave of prophets here and some things that are going on. The word of the Lord came to one of them. He comes to the, another prophet. He says, strike me. And the guy says, no, I'm not going to strike you. Well, he just said, it's the word of the Lord, I'm telling you, by the word of the Lord to strike me, and he wouldn't do it. Uh, and so he says to him, because you've not obeyed the voice of the Lord, 
Surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left, a lion found him and killed him. I've mentioned this several times. There are not lions in this part of the world now. And there weren't lions there in the time of Jesus either. But there were in the time frame that we're looking at here. It's a known you know, fact of natural history that there were lions there. And that, that's one of many things, you know, you look at the Bible's accuracy. Uh, if this had been written, been written hundreds of years later, there weren't lions there, but it wasn't written hundreds of years later. It was written in the time frame that it happened. It's a true record. Um, we have uh, these things happening. And so God sends this prophet that, uh, first of all, can't get cooperation from some of the other prophets. Um, this prophet that refused to cooperate with him uh, is killed by a lion. The, the, the prophet asked another one to strike him, verse 37. Um, he found another man said, please strike me. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. I mean, when somebody asks you to hit him, hit him, I guess. I don't know. Uh, or if they, they tell you by the word of the Lord, at, at least. And that's what happened here. So now the injured prophet disguises himself and uh, waits for Ahab to pass by, I suppose, at a place where Ahab would pass by. We come to verse 39. As the king passed by, he cried, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out in the midst of the battle. Uh, a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. In other words, here's a prisoner. We've caught this prisoner in the middle of this battle we just had. I'm giving him to you to guard. He, you're in charge of this prisoner. You guard this man. If by any means he's missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a, a talent of silver. In other words, you are strictly charged with guarding this prisoner of war. You better keep him. If not, your life will be forfeited. Uh, and then this disguised prophet explains to Ahab. And again, he's telling a story. It didn't happen, but it's an illustration. He says, while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. In other words, well, I got, I got busy, I got distracted, and the guy escaped. Turned around, he's gone. So the king of Israel, Ahab, says to him, so shall your judgment be, you yourself have decided it. You, said, you knew what the judgment would be. There's nothing in, me for this to, in this for me to decide. It is what you said. Your life or a talent of silver is what, what it's going to have to be. So Ahab agrees that this uh, pretend soldier, really a prophet, should be punished. Now the prophet reveals himself. He takes away the bandage from his eyes and he covered up. He pretended, you know, covered up his wound and all that. Now the king recognizes him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction. God's point in allowing helping the Israelites to destroy Syria to win these two battles was that their leader would be taken out along with the rest of them. And that didn't happen because of Ahab's misguided mercy for Ben-Hadad. Because you've let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So you're going to be, you're going to, you're going to be destroyed and your people as well. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Syria. You can imagine he was sullen and displeased. Let's just take a step back from this for a minute, y'all. 
been paying attention pretty well, it looks like. But I want us to think about human nature, sometimes maybe even ourselves. We sometimes think that we're really fine people when we show mercy that God doesn't want shown. What do I mean by that? We meet all kinds of people in the world, sometimes in the church, who want to be told they're okay. When according to God's Word, they're not okay. We grant the mercy. You know, we say, yeah, you're my brother. And uh, we'll make an agreement and go on your way. And that's not really, really what God wants us to do. God wants us to inform people who need to be informed of their sinfulness and their need for Him about that. So what, what happens though is human pride gets hold of us and we, we don't respect God's ways. Uh, we would rather be liked by others and get our way with others than to respect God's way. And I think you see that in Ahab here in this lesson. It's... Uh, kind of how we act at times. Ahab knew that he was guilty. And he returns to his palace in Samaria first, depressed and vexed. Looking at the geography of this a little bit, so he's returned from Aphek to Samaria, capital city. And then we'll go from there to Jezreel, where he also has a palace. And uh, the events that occur, this next section will occur there. This is Jezreel. Uh, the Jezreel Valley that you're looking across there. Settlement on the other side. This was taken in the winter, but you can tell perhaps the very fertile fields. This is a breadbasket of Israel, even still today. Uh, very fertile fields throughout this valley uh, grow tremendous amount of crops. The tree cluster that you see over there in the left top is, uh, is where the Jezreel Spring is, up here. And uh, obviously springs don't move uh, it's identified in the Bible times and still identifiable there. The place where I'm standing where I took this, when, I, when I took this picture is probably the area where the town or city of Jezreel was back in the day of Ahab. In fact, I would say I would be standing very close to where uh, the dogs licked Jezebel's blood probably a little bit later on uh, when we took this picture. So that, that gives you an idea. This is an interesting uh, place to me for several reasons. It comes into the biblical story here and there. Uh, a little later on, you're going to have uh, Jehu driving his chariot furiously. You remember that? We haven't got to that yet. Remember Jehu? He's recognized because he's a crazy driver and you know, driving his chariot. But the, you could look down, if you're standing where I'm standing in this, you look down the Jezreel Valley, you can see, you can see for miles, and you could tell how somebody's driving his chariot from a long way off. Uh, and so again, the geography helps us understand uh, kind of how things happened, I think, in biblical times. Uh, 
Well, there's a man in Jezreel by the name of Naboth. He's a Jezreelite. He has a vineyard that was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab covets Naboth's vineyard, and he says, give me your vineyard uh, that I may have it for a vegetable garden. It's near, it's next to my house. I'll give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its worth in money. So there's the offer. Ahab wants the vineyard. I'll give you money or trade you. Seems like a reasonable offer, but Naboth's going to refuse based really on the law. Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid, and in fact the Lord did forbid, uh, that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. Uh, You can go back into the old law, uh, numerous places, and the land portions that fell to the families belonged to those families generationally and forever. They were not just to give them up. They were not just to trade for them. You couldn't move off of it. It was yours. You were to keep it, if at all possible. If, it, if, if you had to sell it, uh, if you had to go into debt for it or something, uh, that would be returned to you in the year of Jubilee. So it was, you know, God didn't want the Israelites giving up their land portions wherever they are. And it was really not within the right of Naboth, biblically, to sell it. And particularly, not said what tribe each of these uh, is, is from here, but if it's from somebody, of somebody from another tribe, Numbers 36 and verse 7 says, the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe. Uh, Every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So that was... Uh, the law of God. So Naboth, Naboth doesn't want to do it and, and probably biblically can't do it and, and be pleasing to God. Um, but as was his custom when something went wrong uh, or didn't go his way, Ahab becomes sullen. He pouts. Uh, we pick it up in 21 and verse 4. He goes to his house disple- sullen and displeased because of the word of Naboth. Um, and he lay down on his bed, the end of verse 4, turns his face away, and would not eat food. I think I remember doing this when I was about four years old, okay? So Naboth just (laughs) didn't get his way, and he's going to have a little pity party and not cooperate with anybody. Uh, So Jezebel, his wife, comes in and says, oh, honey, what's wrong? Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? And he says, well, I'm throwing a fit. No, that's not what he says. He says, says, um, well, Naboth wouldn't give me his vineyard. I said... uh, uh, I'd I, I pay, pay him for it or I'd give him another vineyard, but he would not give me that vineyard. So Jezebel says, wait a minute. She says, you are the king of Israel. You know, nobody can tell you no, in essence. You, you exercise authority over all, all Israel. Why don't you just get up and eat food and let your heart be cheerful, and I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Anybody notice wrong with that statement, I will give you? One hers to give. <laughs> One hers to give. But uh, just like a lot of, um, unfortunately, politically powerful people today, you know, what, what's, uh, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. You know, it's all mine. And we're going to do with my stuff and your stuff whatever we want to. Uh, that's, that's kind of the attitude of these folks that get prideful and arrogant and think they're all that. And Jezebel was certainly one of those kinds of people. So I'm going to give you uh, Naboth's vineyard. And what she does is she works a deceitful, despicable plan to have Naboth killed, and then obviously his vineyard would be uh, free for the taking. What she does is she tells the 
elders of uh, Jezreel to proclaim a, a fast. Now, when I first looked at this and thought, and, and it didn't come to my mind, first of all, I thought, wasn't it a feast? It wasn't a feast, it was a fast that they are to proclaim. Why, why were fasts proclaimed? Why would you proclaim a fast, uh, say a, a town, proclaim a fast in ancient times? Because everything was going great? Because there was trouble, right? Some kind of trouble. Well, we just had two wars with the Syrians. That turned out okay. But there's some kind of trouble, some problem, some big problem. And maybe it's a, pro- a community problem. Whatever it is, we're going to proclaim a fast. So uh, she, Jezebel instructs the elders of Jezreel to uh, make this like this is a solemn, serious thing and get everybody to come together and, and put, put Naboth up in front. And, and I, I can't figure out in studying this, some of the commentators say doesn't necessarily mean that he was to be honored during the fast. Maybe that he was put on, uh, like he was being put on trial uh, which kind of is what happened. Um, but I'm not sure what is meant exactly by you know, putting him in a place of honor or lifting him up, but in a prominent place at least, one way or the other. Where he, whether he's going to be accused of something or whether he's just in a prominent place where everybody could see where he was. I think the latter is most likely. But in any case, uh, they, they, she instructs them to put two worthless men who would falsely accuse Naboth of cursing both God and the king. This reminds us a little bit of the so-called trial of Jesus before the high priest, right? They, they couldn't find anybody to say anything bad about Jesus, so they got some worthless guys that they hired, false witnesses. Very similar. You remember uh, in Old Testament law, uh, any point of law had to be established by the mouths of two or three witnesses. So this is as a pretense of being legal, uh, and, and they accuse Naboth of cursing both God and the king. Either one of those would be crim, uh, capital offenses according to the old law. Exodus twenty two twenty eight: you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. That's what the law had said. And particularly Leviticus 24 and verse 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Certainly all the congregation will stone him, a stranger as well as he who is born in the land. So that's a direct command regarding somebody who blasphemes God. And so that's what happens. Jezebel's plan is carried out in detail. Naboth is stoned, which according to the law is what should have happened if he was guilty. But all of this was fabricated. Jezebel then presents Ahab with the vineyard. Chapter 21 and verse 16. Uh, Pick up in verse 15. It came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead. Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he doesn't ask why, maybe he knows why, uh, or how Naboth became dead, but he arises and takes possession of the vineyard of Naboth. Um, The word of the Lord comes to now Elijah. 
So Elijah is back in the story interacting with this evil king. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Remember, he's from Tishbe. And said, Arise and go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth. And I gather uh, Ahab was set, was, is being said to be of Samaria. He is in Jezreel at this point. But uh, I think that's just the location of where he's normally from. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? Remember, that's how he greeted him after the three and a half years of drought. Same way. Uh, the troubler of the people. Elijah says, I have found you because you've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of God. And somebody who just gives themselves over to doing that which is wrong for money or possessions, for material gain. I know, I know, the world is full of them, okay? <laughs> but it's a, it's a sad picture of a human being. Uh, Ahab certainly had completely sold his soul just to have something that he wanted. And uh, it's true of a lot of people. He's going to be punished severely, not only killed and his body uh, ravaged by dogs, but Elijah tells him in verse 21, I will bring calamity on you, I will take away your posterity, and will cut off Ahab from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. God is telling Ahab, you're Posterity is going to be completely cut off, just like Jeroboam's was, which we studied a couple of weeks ago, um, just like Bash's was, which we studied. And so his line is going to end. There will be no dynasty of Ahab uh, because of this sin. And Ahab's going to the grave in shame. In 25 and 26, there's a bit of a summary of Ahab's wickedness. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Remember that the Lord sent out the Amorites when the, the, uh, their iniquity was full, replaced them with his people who were to worship him. And now they're doing the same as the Amorites with people like Ahab leading the way. But when Ahab hears this, He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth on his body, he fasts and and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. So this appears to be outwardly at least uh, true contrition. He is realizing something of what he's done. We don't know if he's only feeling sorry for himself, but God seeing the heart. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring 
the calamity on his house. God is so merciful. Somebody like Ahab, uh, who's just been so vile and so contradictory to the ways of God, uh, one would think, uh, how, how is God so patient with such a one? And then here, after all of this, willing to show Ahab mercy only because uh, he's humbled himself. He's indicated sorrow for his wrongdoing. So that's kind of the lesson for today uh, that I want us to take away. We, we've had several good lessons in this. But, but one thing to look at is, is God's, God's justice is often combined with mercy, uh, even for very wicked people. Uh, if they will be contrite and humble themselves before Him. In James chapter 4 and verse 6 in the New Testament, James says about God, He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In Psalm 34 and verse 18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and such as have a contrite spirit. And you see that even there in Ahab. The sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51 and verse 17. Our God's a great God. We're thankful for His grace and mercy. We wonder at it sometimes how He could be merciful somebody like Ahab, but then I've also wondered how he could be merciful to somebody like me. So, I'm glad he's merciful. Any comments or thoughts? All right. Uh, we'll have singing Sunday night. Uh, next Sunday, I will be here, if not in body, in spirit, but we're turning from uh, the trip to Guatemala, and so I've asked Wayne Holt to take the class next Sunday morning. Y'all be ready. He'll grill you. Okay.